I don't want to begin this morning by sounding like a broken record, but I really do need to encourage you, if you've missed either of the first two weeks of our series in Judges, to go back and to get some of the important context uh, by which you can understand these ancient stories. I don't have time this morning to recap a lot of the lead-in. Uh, it would be beneficial if you were unaware of these things, but you'll have to go back. Again, a good reference. If you go to calvary316.tv slash judges, you can get all the audio, you can get all the video, you can stay up, up to speed with the travels through the book. So I'll do my best to at least give you some context because we finished off with verse 10 of chapter 2 last Sunday, meaning we'll pick up with verse 11. Now we're in the middle of some things. It's a little bit to your disadvantage. I'll do my best. The first two chapters of this book, the book of Judges, I believe written by Samuel the prophet, and there's evidence that, that points to that, the last judge, the first prophet. The first two chapters provide for us kind of a bit of a cliff notes, a recap, a prologue. Uh, there's a lot of overlap to some of the, the chapters, summaries of some of the chapters of Joshua. Some new information gets sprinkled in. It's interesting the book begins with the death of Joshua, but then you get into chapter 2 and you have, again, a repeating of the death of Joshua. In this type of literature, often the writer is not as interested in chronology as he is about a theme. And Samuel's presenting for us a theme. So the first two chapters are a bit of a prologue. They set the stage, they establish kind of the why to these various judges. And then you, with chapter 3 through the end of chapter 16, you get the, the tales of the judges. And then the book kind of ends with an epilogue, kind of a transition uh, onward. So we're in the midst of uh, this prologue. We have the repeating in verse 7, 8, 9, and 10 of the death of Joshua. Verse 10 leaves us with a very sad admonition that when all the generation... And again, this is of the Jewish people, have been gathered to their fathers. Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Verse 11, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Again, this set up this transition that we're given here. Informs us that after this generation that came into the land under the leadership of Joshua, this generation, that had seen some important things, mind you. They had seen uh, not just some of God's provisions in the wilderness and his deliverance from Egypt and his presence on Sinai, but they had seen their fathers fail to enter the land of promise, being gripped by fear that there were giants in the land, doubting the work of the Lord, and then dying off, being judged, and wandering the wilderness for 40 years. There was a generation of kids that saw as a child the amazing works of God, and they also saw the consequences of unbelief and the judgment of God. And so after the last of that generation had passed this new generation under the leadership of Joshua. They come back to the Jordan and they send the ark across and the Jordan splits and they enter the land. And God gives them victory after victory. Now that's not to say there wasn't hiccups along the way, but this was a generation of faith, of faithfulness, 
following Joshua's lead, following God's commands, and coming in and subduing the land. But we're told here that after that generation, this generation that came in and, and, and obeyed God and reaped the benefits of their obedience, after that generation passed away, you have another generation that, that, that comes uh, to be that we're told very specifically, they do not know the Lord, they don't know the works which he has done for Israel, and the children of Israel did evil, and they worship foreign gods, Baals. What's a sad, sad transition here. Now, first and foremost, I should make an, a note that this does articulate the importance of us as parents, or you as grandparents, of passing along to the next generation, not the things you know about the Lord. That's a good starting point. But that you allow them to see the relationship you have with the Lord. You know, so often, one generation walks away from the Lord, not because their parents failed to teach them biblical truth, but it was because their parents were teaching them biblical truth they failed to emulate. And thus the kids saw them as just hypocrites. They looked at their lives. They said, the things that you're saying to me and the life that you're living don't add up. So I have to reach a conclusion. Maybe there is no power in this. Maybe you're a fool and a hypocrite. You see, they did not know the Lord. Now understand that word, and we noted this last Sunday, that word know. In the Hebrew language, it doesn't speak of intellect. It doesn't speak of knowledge. It wasn't as though that this next generation failed to know the stories, failed to know the information. No, this generation, they knew the stories. They had the information. They were church kids. They had gone to Sunday school. They had learned the stories from the felt board. No, this word no doesn't speak of knowledge. In the Hebrew, it speaks of intimacy. Again, in other places, you'll read the, that, okay, Adam knew Eve, or Abraham knew Sarah, or Isaac knew Rebecca. It spoke of sex. It spoke of intimacy, to know, not just here, but to have a relationship. This generation obviously knew of the Lord, but they didn't know the Lord. And as parents, hey, your number one job as a parent, it's not for your kid to be the best baseball player. I mean, you don't want them to be a bad baseball player. That's just embarrassing. But your number one job isn't for them to be the best athlete on the planet and die and go to hell. Your number one goal for your kid isn't for them to be the smartest kid in class or the most successful in their career. Now, the number one job you should have as a parent is very simple. Get your kid to heaven. Everything else plays secondary. If you raise a bright kid, a smart kid that goes on to do amazing things on this earth and they die and you spend eternity separated from them, what did you accomplish? Really? It's a challenge. The number one job, get your kids to heaven. And how do you do that? Well, you gotta teach them, you gotta tell them, you gotta make sure they know the truth, but more than that, you've gotta show them. Actions always speak louder than words. And the life that you demonstrate, your kid, 
Your kid will worship the God you worship, not the God you say you worship. And never forget that. So the children of, the, of Israel, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Baals. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. We'll find that phrase repeated often throughout the book of Judges. We'll have time and further studies to unpack it in more detail. But I should note that right from the beginning here, evil is defined very specifically. Again, at the end of the book, you'll find that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that was the sad admission of this culture, this generation, these cycles of people. They did what was right in their own eyes. They determined what they believed was right in their own eyes. This was relativism on steroids. They did what they believed was right. And yet, over and over and over again, in the same book, we find this phrase that they did evil where? In the sight of the Lord, meaning that evil and good is not left up to one's perspective or one's opinion. Rather, good and evil, righteousness and wickedness is determined and defined by the Lord. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, in their sight, they might not have believed they were doing evil. But who cares? For the only opinion of you that matters is God's. And the only true arbitrator of what is right and wrong is the Lord. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then they served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the asterisks. Last Sunday in our introduction, I spent some time unpacking the idea of an idol. Because it's very easy to be reading through some of these stories, and while they were worshiping these these balls, these asterisks, and they think, well, you know, we, we imagine a Buddha statue in our, in our quiet corner of our home, bowing down and worshiping, like, well, I don't have an idolatry problem. I'm not going to be susceptible to worshiping false gods. Come on, Zach. We're a more refined, uh, westernized culture. We don't do that type of thing. And yet, that's just operating on a false definition of what a, a god is. An idol can be defined as anything that takes a preeminent position in your life over Jesus. And that can be all kinds of things. <laughs> it can be relationships. It can be careers. It can be jobs. It can be insecurity. It can be all kinds of, of, of various things or people or objects. And we explained last Sunday how we, how we create these gods for ourselves. What leads us to see we're all worshipers when it's all said and done. And this is the thing you have to understand. You're either going to worship Jehovah God, you're either going to worship Jesus, or you will worship something else or someone else. Like, understand that this is not, like, there's a non sequitur. Like it, it, it's either one or it's the other. It's not an, exclus an exclusion thing. And then some people will try to say, well, I'll worship both things. But Jesus is like, uh-uh, I'm not into that game. I'm a jealous God. You worship me and alone? 
or you don't worship me at all. So that's not the option. You're either worshiping Jesus and he's the most important thing in your life, or you're worshiping something else, but you are worshiping regardless. Understand you're not given a pass. It's one or it's the other. And you can think back in your life, can't you? Of the times where you weren't worshiping Jesus, and there was a myriad of gods that you had shown allegiance to, from an addiction or a bottle to a scene or a crew. Again, gods, counterfeit gods, false saviors. So we have this picture, this new generation, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They're worshiping these other gods. Now we're told that they're Baal and the asterisk. And as best as the scholars can figure, that these are, are very broad um, examples of particular gods that you would have found within all of these different cultures and different, and different crews. And they're, they're based in a lot of mysticism. Now, again, catapult yourself back before the scientific revolution and the development of our understanding of how the natural world works, and you're one of these ancient cultures, and you're looking around at the world. There's two big mysteries to life, isn't there? I mean, think about it in the most simplistic way. Like, first, it's like, how in the world do we have food? Like, how does stuff grow? Now, we understand the, 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 the role of the sun and soil and photosynthesis, how all the molecules, how all this stuff works, how the seed germinates, etc. We understand this. And that culture, they knew they could take a seed, and they could put it in the soil, they could add some water, and it would grow up and feed their family. How that happened is completely mysterious. Kind of radical to think, really. And as best as we can try to explain how this stuff works, it's not apart from a miracle of God. That you could take a nut, put it in the soil, and a hundred years, it's a huge oak tree. That all of the information, all of the, like it all came from just the code of this small little thing, boop, in the soil, little water. Now, if you're in the ancient world and you're trying to explain that type of thing, especially when you're really dependent upon this stuff growing for you because it's your source of food. Again, this whole area, it's very agricultural. They, they grew their own food. It was required for sustenance. And not just that, but the cattle also had to have stuff grow in order for it to eat, etc. They were dependent upon this for life. And so if there was famine or there was, there was a lack of rain or there was some natural disaster. If there were things that happened that disrupted the process, I mean, your life was at peril. So it was very important. You didn't understand how this worked. Now, God articulated. So the Hebrew people knew God created. And, they, and God was the provider. And they were to trust and be obedient to God. And he said he'd give them a land flowing with milk and honey. Right? He would take care of all their needs. They didn't need to worry about the why because they knew the who. But the problem here is that they departed from God and Baal provided an answer. It was the God of intelligence and science. It provided the explanation for how these things took place. Now, Baal was a cohort of Ashtoreth. The other great mystery to life is how do babies come? I mean, really, again, without explanation, it is quite a thing. Two minutes of enjoyment yield to life. 
a human being. Wife, husband, have fun. Something grows in wife. Nine months later, that thing comes out screaming. Life. Again, in the ancient culture, how does that happen? Again, it's important for the sustaining of life. You needed a large family to help with, with chores and farms, and it was prosperity. It was, it was an important thing. So you had these things. So in the ancient world, in these cultures, you had Baal was more of the naturalist in the sense of providing the explanation for the science of how everything worked. The intellectual argument, Baal, was more of the male, and Asterisk was the female's fertility, the fertility god. Now, the worship of these two gods within this culture, and there's a lot of archaeological evidence to lend support to this, was typically temple prostitution. And so if you were really needing a good crop that year or you needed uh, your wife to get pregnant, you would go and you would, you would make an offering to Baal or to one of the asterisks, and it would often engage in, in, in perverse sexual practices. In extreme situation, it would yield child sacrifice. There were grotesque sexual activities associated with the worship of these gods. And so when God warned them, get rid of these people, I know your heart, it's fickle, you're going to end up being tempted to follow after their gods. And then they fail to obey God, they leave these people around, they don't know the Lord, and they're looking around like, well, this provides another explanation. It's the allowance of pluralism in their society. And so here they are. They forsook the Lord, and they serve Baal and the asterisks. And you can understand just the basic inclination of, of a fallen human heart. Hey, pal, I see that your crop isn't going very well this year. Yeah, man. I've been praying to God. Jehovah, my God. Doesn't seem to be happening. Well, why don't you come to my church service? We can take care of this. Well, what does your church service entail? babes. I mean, there's a, a, a allure here. That's why God's trying to be very particular. Don't even give allowance for these things. Well, verse 14, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. <laughs> you, you, you know, you just, you don't want that to be said of you. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Mike or Zach. Not a good place to be. Now, why was the anger of the Lord hot? Well, because he's a jealous God. Now, when we talk about love and jealousy, our initial reaction is that it's met with a bit of reservation. Because we don't think of jealousy as being a good thing within the context of, of love. Like we don't, we, we think of immediately like a jealous boyfriend or a clinging girlfriend, somebody that's overbearing and doesn't trust you and is constantly nagging. Like when we talk about oh, jealousy within the love context, we're, we're met with a, a hesitation and there's an inclination that that's not a good thing. Well, why is the anger of the Lord hot against Israel? Israel's his bride, and she's playing the whore. 
and he loves Israel, and she's, she's being unfaithful, and he's angry because he's jealous. Now, please understand, there is a line in which jealousy is, is, a, is a terrible thing. But within the context we find here of God, there's something important to it. For love does demand a certain measure of jealousy. If I found out that my wife was cheating on me, and my reaction to such a thing would be like, well, you know, I just respect her decisions, and that's just what she wants to do, and it's, you know, with what it is, I'll just be better. No. Like, you would you'd be like, well, there's something really wrong with your marriage. Like, there should be an initial reaction, a hotness, a flame. That's my wife. I love her. I'm jealous for her. Especially when there's the, the inclination or the gravitation towards another. So when we get that, that God is a jealous God, that's not in a bad context. It, it demonstrates how much he loves us. To the point that when he sees us doing things that we shouldn't, he gets angry about it. A righteous anger. And he delivered, as a result of the anger, he delivered them into the hands of plunders who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So, so we're getting, this again, this is the prologue. We're getting kind of a summary of what ends up being 12 cycles of Jewish history that cover between 400 and 450 or so years. They would not listen to the judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them, worshiped them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked and obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, deliverers, literally, the Lord was with the judge, delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead, that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them, to bow to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. A couple things I need to point out about this summary of the cycles here. Actually, it's a bit of a misconception that a lot of people go into the book of Judges with. A lot of times, the way that we would frame judges is that Israel was doing wicked. They had turned from the Lord. They were misbehaving. They were going after idols. They were playing the harlot. And God, as a result, used one of these surrounding uh, people groups to punish them, to place them into bondage. And then over the course of some time, the children of Israel came to their senses, and they cried out in repentance to the Lord, and as a result of their repentance to the Lord, he raised up a judge that would deliver them out of the hand of their opposition. 
And then they, they, they return to this covenant relationship. There's a problem with that, that, that structure. It's not true. There's actually one component of that structure that we get wrong. And that is the idea that there was repentance ever in the midst of it. And in fact, if you go back to the text, why would God raise up a judge? Well, if you look back, let's see what verse is it. Verse 18, and the Lord would raise up judges. Middle of the verse, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and harassed them. Understand, God was motivated to deliver the children of Israel out of the judgment for their sin and wickedness because of their groaning. You can unpack that word. It has no connotations to repentance in any context. It simply means they were crying out in their pain and their distress. They were upset that they were being judged, and it didn't feel very good. They were groaning. They weren't repenting. Now, that's an important qualification. Again, when you go up, back to verse 15 and 16, wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity as the Lord had sworn to them, they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up a judge. So that's our context. What is absent from the context? Repentance. The people are sinning, they get judged because of their sin, and they're upset about it. And sometimes it takes eight years, sometimes it takes 18 years, sometimes it takes a long time for them to really get down and out about their predicament. And they begin to cry out, this stinks! And God responds not to a repentant heart, but to a hurting one. And he raises up a judge. Now, from the ministry of the judge, we will find repentance and a restoration for the, the time period that that judge would serve. And then we'd begin the cycle again. But note that God responds to what? They're asking they're pleading, they're begging. No, he responds to their groaning. He acts independent of repentance. Nevertheless, anytime I run across the word nevertheless in scripture, I tend to highlight it. I tend to highlight it because it's a good indication and it's a good uh, a bit of evidence to the presence of the most wonderful word in Scripture, grace. At any point, did these people deserve God to provide a deliverer? No. At no point. At no point in time. Nevertheless. You see, all of these judges point us to the deliverer, Jesus, who would step into this world and he would act independent of us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. There was none of us involved in that. But he gave his only begotten son. God sent a deliverer, even when we weren't asking for one. Why? Because he heard our groaning. He knew what sin was doing. He knew the damage and the effects. He's like, I'm going to provide a deliverer before they even repent. Amazing. Verse 20. 
So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generation of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formally known it. Now, there's an interesting idea here within its Israeli context. They failed to obey God. Thus, there were these nations in the land that would be a thorn in their side that God would use to teach them certain lessons. What was God's plan? God's plan was to get rid of these nations, but they didn't. So in the presence of their disobedience, God decides, I'm going to leave these people here. I'm going to never really give you the victory over them so that they're a constant reminder, a source of me teaching you important lessons. Now, that, that's in its Israeli context. I don't like to do this a lot, but we will occasionally. I want to place this in kind of an, an allegorical idea as Judges presents to us. Jesus gave us the victory in the land, Joshua. Wasn't our work, it was his work. He died, he's no longer with us, he says, take the rest of the land. Joshua is about the victory in faith. Judges is about enjoying the land that Jesus gave us through our obedience, being faithful, the role of faithfulness. Now, it's interesting, have you ever thought, Jesus, you gave me the victory. You died for my sins. You cleansed me. You washed me new. The old man is dead. All things have become new. I mean, Lord, you did this amazing work in my life. Why did you leave all this other junk here? <laughs> have you ever had that thought? Like, you know, it would have been great. Now, I, I know people that were drug addicts, were, I mean, just out there, and they, they stumbled in to a Bible study, and they walked down the altar, and they gave their life to Jesus, and boom, like this miracle happened, and they were immediately sober, and God removed the addiction from them, and that was great. That doesn't happen to everyone. In fact, I'd say that it happens to fewer of us than that example. A lot of the times, hey, Jesus does the work we could never do, saves us, restores us, makes us new, fills us with his spirit. But then we still have this battle. You see, he leaves these things in our lives, not to overcome us, but again, if we're looking at this concept, to do what for us? To teach us, to teach us war, to teach us victory, to teach us dependence on the Lord. Again, anytime the children of Israel would try to take these battles on by themselves, what would result? Defeat. And yet God would leave these battles for them to learn dependence on the Lord to grant further victory. Again, going back to our introductory statement, there's a lot of war in Judges. 
the Christian experience is framed in the same idea, warfare. That's why we're told, Paul would write, daily put on the full armor of God. Like Christians are not walking around in our togas and flip-flops. Like we're supposed to gear up daily. Why? There's a very real enemy in the world seeking to destroy us and rob us and steal from us. The New Testament, the life in Christ, the life in the Spirit, not only are we given this full armor, we're actually given a sword to be able to go on the, not just to play defense, but to go on offense. Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and the darkness of this age. And you're to have the armor and you've got a weapon. And so it's framed in the same context. So Jesus does the victory. Jesus does a work in our hearts, but then Jesus leaves other things and the path for us to engage. And again, within the context, why? To prove them, to prove them. To prove them what? Well, they prove them failures more than anything, and that's okay. You know, you're not trying to prove anything to God. He already knows everything about you. In fact, when, when you fail, he's not surprised. Yeah, saw that coming. Shocker. No, often to prove is like, wow, I can't do this. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't save myself, and I can't do anything else. Which is why if, like, if I'm going to overcome the, 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 the flesh, as Paul would say, I have to walk in the spirit and you won't overcome the, the lust of the flesh. Is that got me to do anything? No, I have to be in the spirit. Like the, the battles prove to me that I don't have the strength to do it. Which leads me to what? It teaches me also a, resil- a resilience, a reliance on the Lord. Why does God allow the battle? You know, it would have been great if Jesus died, saved us upon our conversion. We were in heaven. Like, immediate rapture, right? Jesus, I give you my heart and my life. Boom, you're gone. Purpose fulfilled. But he doesn't, does he? He leaves us here. We're in the land. We have this life. But it comes with battles. It comes with mountaintops, it comes with valleys, it comes with places of victory and those of defeat. He doesn't just take us home, he leaves us to teach us, to grow us. We're given the names of these kingdoms. We're told, namely, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hevites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites. Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, 
the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Adasites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons. And they served their gods. We're not going to be able to get any further than this. This kind of concludes the introduction to the judges. Next Sunday, we'll get to look at Othniel, which is a, a wonderful story. And then we might even be able to get to Ehud, which is, which is fun. Read ahead. I encourage you to do that. But we're here right at the end, given this, this sad progression. Now, if you read through the prologue, Starts with, hey, Lord, what do we do? There's still, Joshua's dead. There's still people in the land. And the Lord's like, I'm calling Judah, the tribe of Judah. Root them out. And Judah does a pretty good job. They make some compromises here, but they seem incidental. In fact, you start reading through the first chapter, and you're kind of given the indication that, you know, it wasn't all that bad. I mean, there was a little compromise here. They, instead of running out this group, they were like, well, let's just put them into, into some kind of tribute. We can make some money off of them. You know, hey, we got the mountains, but in the down in the valley, they got the chariots. You know, let's just stay up in the mountains. Like, there's small things, small compromise. Doesn't seem to be grand consequence or overwhelming results. And, 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 and a bad sense. In fact, you can even make the argument that in the presence of Israel's partial obedience, God still granted quite a bit of blessing, which is a dangerous thing for us. Like, you need to understand that the blessing of God is not always an indicator of the reward of your faithfulness. Sometimes it's just more evidence of His grace. But what happens? You know, we're living this life in Christ. We start making these small moral compromises, small things, incidental things, not big things. Yes, I know it's not right. I know that this isn't what God asked. I know I'm not being fully obedient, but I'm being partial obedient. And look, everything seems pretty good. I'm being blessed. My business is doing good. My marriage looks all right. My kids seem okay. Like I, I, I sense the blessing of God in the presence of me not like fully obeying God, so I, I take obedience, I see blessing, it's partial, I think I'm all right. I can keep doing this. I can get away with this. But you're being, you're mistaking the grace of God as a license to continue to do what you're doing as opposed to flashing signals saying, stop it. And so you meander your way through the first chapter, and then you get into the second chapter, and Jesus walks out of the tabernacle and is like, yo, what's up? And then by the end of this, this introduction, you're into chapter 3, before we get to the judges, we have gone from like small things to what now? God's like, what you're doing is evil in my sight. It's wicked. I'm going to judge you. This is terrible. And they're worshiping foreign gods. They were just like, coexisting. They were just allowing people to stay in the land, right? But then you get to these last few verses. Are they, are they allowing people to just coexist with them anymore? No, we've gone from small compromise to full-blown rebellion. It's not as though they're adding little Baal, Baal to Jehovah. They've set Jehovah, they've forsaken Jehovah, and they've gone full hedonism. 
And their daughters are marrying the sons, and their sons are marrying the daughters. And, and from the, the bigger picture of the bloodline and the Messiah, this is a dangerous thing. The point where we're at in our, in our travels, before we even get to the first judge, small compromises never start small. If you don't stop, they grow, and they spread, and they grow more rotten. They'll blow up on you. And don't mistake everything being okay right now as God's permission that that's okay. It's his grace. He's withholding this judgment But then the day comes where now you're, you're worshiping other gods. And we will see God handle these people. And there's grace. Because even when the world comes tumbling down, repentance is a great thing. It initiates the plans of God immediately. But even absence of repentance, I do believe God will hear our groaning. I know that there have been times in my life where I wasn't repentant, but God intervened and said, enough. You ever had that experience? Yeah. Father, Lord, we thank you for your